Thank you, Ray. It's good to be invited to be here. It's good to be invited back. Thank you very much. I've come to really respect and appreciate your preacher. Uh, he is congenial and joyful, loves the Lord, and so gifted. You're blessed to have him. And I just sense the, the growth and the increasing vitality of this church, and it's, it's wonderful to see that. Uh, my wife Judy is here, along with some friends, and last night we went to the airport and picked up my 13-year-old grandson. And Johnny and my wife Judy, would you stand so they can see who you are? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> picked up my grandson at the airport and I said, now I'm speaking tomorrow at Graceland. He said, Pop, are you preaching at Elvis Presley's home? <clears throat> Well, I have been to Graceland in Memphis, and I've been to Graceland in New Albany. I'd rather be here on this Father's Day. Father's Day is not nearly as big as Mother's Day. Have you noticed that? The florist doesn't do as big a business. Hallmark doesn't sell as many cards. Church attendance doesn't skyrocket on Father's Day. On Mother's Day, the preacher usually praises Mother for all the sacrifices that she makes, and people get teary-eyed. But on Father's Day, it's more common for the minister to scold fathers for being terrible role models, and everybody says amen. <laughs> One father in the parking lot after being beat up on a Father's Day sermon said, they call this Father's Day? That's like calling the first day of duck season Ducks Day. I feel like I've been shot at all morning long. Dads don't get much respect, not just in church, but in the media. Have you ever noticed the number of ads on television that portray dad as totally incompetent? He looks to be a doofus. One of the first, one of the worst was that Capital One ad where the father took his family on a ski vacation in midsummer to the Rockies. There wasn't any snow. They try to ski down a dry slope and somebody hits a rock and gets hurt and the disgusted son says, what's in your wallet? And then there was that movie, National Lampoon's Vacation, when Chevy Chase played Clark Griswold, who took his family 2,000 miles across the country to go to Wally World, only to discover that it was closed when he arrived. We have fallen a long way from Father Knows Best to Homer Simpson. And you never see mothers ridiculed as being so absurd. We hear about absentee fathers and deadbeat dads, but there aren't many labels for missing mothers or messy moms. That's just not politically correct. But it's open season on dads. It's okay to make him a buffoon and the target of ridicule. And men, let's be honest, sometimes we bring it on ourselves because we're not very sensitive to other people's feelings. Somebody sent me a clip recently from a classified ad some guy took out an ad, I have two tickets to the U.S. Open final round, but I just realized I'm getting married that day and can't go. If you're interested in going in my place as the St. Paul's Church and her name is Emily. <laughs> you know, sometimes we bring it on ourselves. But the fourth commandment reads, honor your father. One of my favorite lines in a movie ever was from To Kill a Mockingbird when uh, Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch, a lawyer defending a black man in the South who is accused falsely of rape. 
he doesn't win the case even though he does it well and he's so dejected at the end as he walks out of the courtroom his two little children in the balcony have been watching all the proceedings through the railings of the balcony and they've been under the care of another black man Reverend Sykes and Reverend Sykes says Jean Louise stand up your father is passing I'd like for you to stand up today in your heart as we think about your father. God created three institutions for the stability of a culture. One is the family, second is the government, and thirdly is the church. But the family is first. The family is the basic building block of everything else. And when the family crumbles, the entire society comes unraveled. The Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? That's why we're so concerned when we flippantly redefine marriage or we allow families to crumble around us because the entire society is threatened. That's why I'd like to look today to the father uh, to pay tribute to fathers by studying the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Now here is a father who did a lot of things very well. In fact, he represents God, so there is a sense in which we can say he is a perfect father. Now none of us had a perfect dad, but your father probably exhibits some of the same quality of this dad in Jesus' parable. And these are the characteristics that you should be thanking your father and be standing up in his honor today. Luke 15, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons and the younger said to his father, father give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Here's the first thing I want you to notice about this father. He generously provided for his family's needs. The father of the prodigal son was evidently very well off. The younger of the sons received only one third of the estate, but this young man went off into a far country, squandered a lot of money. It took him a while to spend it all. He lived in wild living. Later on at the end of the story, we read that there were hired servants on the estate extra garments and rings and fatted calves and the resources to hire musicians and throw a spontaneous party when the occasion arose. This father was not only well off, he was very generous with his family. The younger son asked for his inheritance in advance and the father gives it to him. According to the NIV study Bible, it reads, it was highly unusual for a father to give his son the inheritance in advance of his death. A father might divide the inheritance on paper so that the boys would know what they could expect, but to actually give the money prior to the death was unheard of. I've got two sons. If my younger son said, hey, dad, I think when, when you die, I'm going to inherit a couple thousand, hundred thousand dollars, I'd like it right now. He probably wouldn't get anything at all. I'd cut him out of the will. But this father was so generous that he gave it to him in advance. That's above and beyond what was expected. The first responsibility of a father is to provide for the basic needs of his family. Food, shelter, and clothing. 1 Timothy 5.8 reads, If anyone does not provide 
for his immediate family. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. As soon as a baby is born, any father with a conscience immediately feels this responsibility to provide for that child. It's an awesome experience to look into the face of a newborn and suddenly realize this child is totally dependent upon me for survival. Now that's not only sobering, it is costly. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates how much it costs to raise a child. Their study concluded that American parents uh, earning $60,000 or more a year spend about $12,000 a year on a child up to two years old. Little less if you have more than one child, little more if just one child. But contrary to what the parents of newborns might think, the first years of life are not the costliest. From age 15 to 17, kids cost their parents $13,000 a year. Now, you add up all the figures of the Department of Agriculture and the cost of raising one child from birth through graduation from high school is about $250,000. Now, you add college onto that. Your child goes on to a state school, maybe $10,000 a year, onto a private school, $40,000, $50,000 a year. So you get well up over $300,000 to raise one child. You could have a jet in your backyard. <laughs> Somebody said a father is a man who has photos in his wallet where his money used to be. <laughs> have you ever stopped to express appreciation for your dad for just providing your basic needs? Maybe you complained your dad, dad didn't make as much as some other kid's dad's, or he had to travel, or he was on call and you got interrupted at home. But be realistic. No job is ideal. Every occupation has its drawbacks. And your father was doing his best to see to it that your needs were provided simply because he cares for you. And chances are your dad didn't just provide the basic needs. He probably also, like the father of the prodigal son, did more than was expected. He dished out money for designer clothing and athletic shoes that cost more than than regular brands and karate or ballet or music lessons and extra batteries for toys and $500 deductible when you wreck the car. A lot of dads are not just generous with money, but they're generous with time. We hear about fathers, you need to spend more time with your kids. But I see a lot of dads spending a lot of time with their kids because they love them. I visited my grandson's dad, my, my son in Florida last fall. He spent three or four hours in the morning going to his daughter's horse show and watching her. Then that afternoon, uh, this young man had a football game and the league football and went to that football game. It was delayed two or three hours because of lightning strikes. And, and my son is going to preach the next day. Spent the whole day with these two kids because he cares them, giving time. If you had a dad who provided for you and was generous with you, you be thankful. He did that because he loved you. He may not have verbalized it. My father grew up in a dysfunctional home and in the depression, and I can never remember him saying the words, I love you. But I, I, I didn't expect him to say that. That's just that generation. He showed that he loved me by going to work every day at 5.30, by coming to my ball games and playing catch with me and, and spending time. I'm so grateful for him. The authorities, uh, the executives at 
Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown told me several years ago that Bob Feller, the uh, uh, Hall of Fame pitcher, had just been there before I visited. Feller died at age 92 in 2010. He's a crusty old man. But they asked Bob Feller, if you could relive one moment of your baseball career, what would it be? They expected him to say World Series, no hitter or something. And Bob Feller said, if I could relive one moment of my baseball career, if I could go back, I'd like to go back and play catch with my dad one more time. If you had a dad who played with you, who taught you how to do basic things on the computer, or how to do your homework, you be thankful for da- today for a dad who is generous with you. Here's a second thing about this father. He wisely gave his son space when it was appropriate to do so. Verse 13 reads, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. This father releases his son when it's time to do so. When I was a younger preacher, I used to think this father was too permissive. He should have said to his son, no, you can't go to the far country. You're not ready for that. But I suspect a combination of the boy's age and his rebellious spirit uh, persuaded the father that it was time to let him go. He had no other option. And so he gave him room to make his own choices, even though he chose poorly. One of the most difficult things that dads have to do is to release their children because we want to be protective. I have a friend at Southeast who has a teenage daughter who's very beautiful. And so he put together a form entitled Permission to Date My Daughter. And it has some pretty demanding requirements. The first question is, do you own a van? If so, stop filling out this form. In 50 words or less, what does the word late mean to you? In 50 words or less, what does the phrase don't touch my daughter mean to you? If I were beaten, the last bone I would want to be broken is fill in the blank. Then it concludes, thank you for your interest. Please allow four to six years for processing. Fathers instinctively want to protect their children, determine their destiny. And it's really difficult to release them from sending them off to first grade or letting them drive the car for the first time or going off to college or walking them down the aisle. Gary Ezzo a few years ago suggested four transition periods that parents pass through with their children. And the success of each phase depends on the willingness to release them or take them through properly the previous phase. The first phase is discipline, birth through age five. And the primary goal of a parent in this phase is to establish the right to rule in the life of the child. Your task early on is to get control of the child, and the key word is the word respect. Fathers, mothers, understand your child is born with a sin nature, and no matter how compliant, no matter how cute they may appear to be, there's going to come a day when they are going to rebel against authority. And your job early on is to teach them to respect authority so years later it will be easier for them to say to God, not my will, but thine be done. 
That's why Proverbs 22:15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now let me hasten to add, it is never ever right to abuse a child. We know that. Neither, however, is it right to never teach the child that disobedience brings pain and obedience brings blessing. That lesson begins even before they begin to walk. That little baby is crawling on the floor, reaches out toward an electric socket, and you say, no, no, don't touch. And they look back at you a little later and reach out and smile and start to touch. You just think, you smack the back of their hand hard enough to sting, but not hard enough to do any damage. They well up and cry, but they learn disobedience brings pain. And that's a lot less painful than 15 years later when they reach out and you say, no, no, no drugs. But if they have not learned the meaning of no, there's a whole lot more pain. Don Loney, a teenage speaker, says that in his house growing up, his mother had a paddle that hung on the wall over the, the stove, and over it was the inscription, I need thee every hour. <laughs> you know what? The truth is, if you establish rule and authority early, you don't need it every hour. You don't need it every day if you establish authority early. The second phase is training from age six to 12. The parent here is compared to a trainer working with an athlete every day in different settings. The trainer is able to stop, make adjustments and corrections, explaining the reason for the mistakes, showing how it is to be done properly. But the key word here is consistency. You establish guidelines, you establish parameters, and you stick with it. And you say, look, you say yes sir, no sir every time and we set the alarm in your room for 6.30. When the alarm rings, we expect you to get up every day. And if you're late for school, you've gotta to go to bed a half hour early that night. And you have just an hour of screen time today, and when it's over, we shut it down. You are consistent, and you're closely enough involved to know what's going on. You don't make idle threats. You follow through with what is right and wrong. I was nine years old, when I came home from Little League baseball practice, all excited, Mom and Dad, guess what? Our team gets to go to the Cleveland Indians Detroit ba Tigers baseball game. All we got to do is wear our uniforms, carry a lunch, and we get to go free. I've always wanted to go to a Major League Baseball game. Now I get to go. Well, they rejoiced with me until they looked at the day that it was scheduled, and it was a Sunday, and they said, you can't go. That's the day we go to church. So I always go to church. Just this one time, let me go to the baseball game. No, God comes first. And so on Sunday morning, my dad drove right by where the kids were getting on the bus going to Cleveland to see the baseball game. My dad beeped the horn and waved. I dove down the back seat. I didn't want my friends to see I was going to church. But you can see they forever warped me. You know, I learn consistently God comes first. You parents who have children who are athletes and they're on a travel team and you say, well, we can't come for the next five or six weeks because, you know, my son's on this baseball team, my daughter's on this volleyball team, and we're traveling. And what you teach your child is that playing ball is really important. Worshiping God is secondary. Listen, if your child is a great athlete, great enough to get a scholarship or play professionally, they'll find them. You don't have to shortchange God. In this stage of life, you consistently teach them values and priorities. 
Then the third stage is the coaching stage from 13 to 19. By now, children are in the game themselves. We can send in plays from the sidelines, huddle up during timeouts, but we can no longer stop the game and show them how it's to be played. They're now running the plays, making impromptu decisions. And the key word here is alertness. Because the kids, the teenagers, are not going to tell you about every decision. They're not going to tell you everything they're doing. So you need to be aware of what's going on in their room. You need to be aware of where they are and not be naive about what your kids are doing or are capable of doing. You're the coach, but you still have the authority to put them on the bench to take away the car keys and freedom privileges. I have a son who's a policeman. A couple of years ago, he stopped four girls on their way to a Friday night football game. He stopped them because the car was weaving. They'd already been drinking heavily, and all four girls were wearing bikini tops. Dad, where are you? It's not just the girls. The 14-year-old boy, he's got a risque poster on the wall of his bedroom. He's got a computer with no blockage in his room, maybe even a webcam. And if you interview the parents, they'll say, well, times have changed. The kids are all going to unsupervised parties. They've all got the computers. We can't control them. You be too strict, you know, you can drive them away. All the kids are getting tattoos on their cheeks. All the kids are getting to tongue piercing. Parents have this awful fear of rejection from their kids. And they say, well, you know, if we try to correct them, they pout and stomp, stomp around, make the home miserable. It's not worth that. But listen, you give them too much freedom, too fast, those kids will soon be bored with the average activity and begin to push the envelope into dangerous areas. And that's why so many kids are experimenting with drugs and alcohol and sex at younger and younger ages. Wise parents give consistently progressive freedom as the children get older. And we say, look, when you're eight years of age, we may let you go to day camp. When you're 10, if you're responsible, we may let you stay overnight at a friend's house if we know the family really well. When you get to be 13, we may give you a cell phone, but with limited capability. When you're 16, if you're responsible, we'll let you drive a car, maybe double date. And when you get to be a senior, we may push curfew back an hour. Can you stay overnight in the motel room on prom night? No. Don't you trust me? No, not in a motel room on prom night, I don't trust you. you know, then, when they get old enough to go to college, we say, look, if we're still paying the bills, we expect decent grades, we're not going to finance the party life, and you follow through. Then, when your kids get married and settle into their own home, and you're no longer paying the bills, you release them completely, and you enter the final stage of friendship, 20 and up. And you're as close a friend to your kids as they want you to be. But you refuse the right to tell them what to do. This is a phase of life that I've been in now for a little while. I'm going to tell you what, this is the greatest phase of life. The kids are grown and the bills are paid and the dog is dead. It's a wonderful day. But you don't correct them anymore. The key word here is the word encouragement. Because you, you want to correct your child and you say, look, you, 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 uh, you, you need to discipline your kids differently. You, you, you need to spend your money differently. But they've grown and you've released them. I've got a son who's a preacher in Florida. And he, he's a good preacher. I watch him online. But he doesn't dress the way a preacher should dress. 
he looks a little bit like Ray Green when he, <laughs> he gets out this wrinkled shirt, blue jeans and tennis shoes. I watch his sermon. You know what I do? I call him and say, good sermon. Not time for me to correct him. I've done all the damage I can do. I've released him. I have a friend in ministry when his daughter was 21 years of age, she was living at home. She asked permission at 21 from her dad, since she's living at home, she wanted to go with her boyfriend to Alabama uh, for a week and stay at some friend's house. She said, now dad, everybody's a Christian in the house and we'll be staying in separate rooms. But he's worried about her reputation, he's worried about temptation. And he finally said to her, I'd rather you not go, but you're 21, you've got to make your own decision. She went. And he squirmed. He could do nothing but wait. But I think he did the right thing. Bob Benson said, if you, want your, uh, if you want to hold on to your children, let them go. Then when they come down the driveway to see you, you'll know the only reason they're coming back is because they wanted to see you. But problems arise when parents skip a, a, phrase, a phase and they'll try to be friends with their kids too early or they try to hold on too long. And if you had a dad who let you go, who gave you reasonable freedom. Maybe you need to stand up today because your father's passing by. I sense the father of the prodigal son knew it was time to give his son more space and let him learn from the school of hard knocks. Well, here's the last thing I want you to see. This father graciously forgave a serious offense and moved on. Luke 15, 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country and he began to be in need. He's hungry for the first time ever. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, got a job for the first time, and he sent him into the field to feed the pigs. To a Jewish man, feeding pigs, that's the lowest occupation. That's like a minimum wage job, working in a car wash or something. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Nobody gave him anything. When the famine comes, Friendships and generosity shrivel up. I like this phrase, when he came to his senses. He'd been senseless, he'd been foolish. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Wow, I left home because I didn't like the guidelines of my strict dad, and now I'm a slave to a complete stranger. I know what I'll do. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He left home selfishly saying, give me. Now he returns home saying, make me a servant. So he got up and went to his father. But while he's still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now the boy is not going to hear the lecture that he expected he was going to hear. This father was hurt. Can't you imagine what he could have said? You've wasted all that money already? Son, you've made your bed. You're going to have to lie in it. Do you have any idea what you've done to your mother? She's aged 10 years in two years. She's just lying awake at night. And we've almost forgotten about you. We've almost got over it. Now you come back here and dredge up all those emotions. I don't know if we have anything left to give you. You know, whatever I have rightfully belongs to your older brother. You're going to have to talk to him. Can you explain how you could do such a thing to us? I told you what sin would do to your life. Now look at you, you're, you're skinny, you smell like a pig, you come back here. What an embarrassment you've been to my reputation. I try to explain where you are. I feel like a failure. That's probably what the boy expected to hear. 
all true. And the father was hurt. But he didn't respond that way. The father loved him so much he forgave him and restored the relationship. And he said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Have you had a dad who forgave you of stupid mistakes? When I was eight years old, my dad had a Nash Rambler. Here's a picture of that car. I don't know why we have this picture in the archives of a, my family home, but we do. Here's me at eight years of age with that Nash Rambler. And you notice the Nash Rambler back doors open just the opposite of car doors today. They were later called suicide doors for obvious reasons. We were riding in this car home from Christmas Eve service and uh, about 8.30 at night, my mother and dad and six kids in the car and I was sitting by the back door on the left and I kept looking at that door and the door handle and wondering what would happen if I just flicked that door handle a little bit. I was a little interested in aerodynamics as an eight year old and my curiosity got the best of me. I just flicked that handle and boom, that door caught the wind, stood right out in oncoming traffic with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And my dad screeched to a halt. I dove down in the back seat. My mother turned around and said, oh, where's Bobby? Where's Bobby? My sister said, oh, mother, he's down here on the floor. He's all right. My dad got out of the car, leaned against the car in the middle of the road, took several deep breaths, got back in the car, drove the rest of the way home without saying a word. And I knew I was in deep trouble. And my sisters kept saying on the way home, what kind of an idiot would pull open a car door? What is wrong with you? As soon as we got in the driveway, I bolted out of the car, raced into the living room, went stood by the Christmas tree for protection. <laughs> My dad stalked into the room, marched over to me, he grabbed me, he gave me the biggest and longest hug I ever remember receiving from him, and he kept saying, I'm sure glad you didn't fall out of the car. I'm sure glad you didn't fall out of the car. I was too. You know, it's so easy for me, with a dad like that, to think of a heavenly father who can forgive and forgive again. Have you had a father, an earthly father, who forgave you? Maybe you broke a window. Maybe you got caught cheating, kicked off the team. Maybe you wrecked the car. Maybe you got arrested for drunk driving. Maybe there was an unwanted pregnancy. And there was some tension, maybe some harsh words, but your dad hung in there with you and bailed you out, worked it through. Maybe you need to stand up today in your heart because your dad is passing by. Maybe you need to say thanks to a dad whose love kept coming like that. That may mean you make a phone call today you hadn't planned to make, or you get a last minute card, or you text message or you go jump in your dad's lap or you hug his neck and say I, I just want to tell you again I appreciate what you did. You see the story of the prodigal is a picture of the heavenly father's love for us. He provided for us generously more than we deserved. He's given us space freedom of the will to do and make choices as we please and when we violated his will he's willing to forgive and reinstate us into his kingdom. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us 
that we should be called children of God. The Bible says God loves the contrite spirit. And when we repent, he is eager to forgive. When one of my sons turned 17, he violated a family rule big time. I was so upset, called him into the family room, confronted him with the issue, and to his credit, he said, Dad, I did it, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But I'm an imperfect father, and I was angry, and I began to grind him down. Why would you do that? You know the consequences. We've warned you about that. Why would you even go there? Why would you go running off those kids? You know better. And to his credit, he didn't bolt out of the room and say, I cannot live in a preacher's house. I can't live up to your standards. I'm out of here. Instead, he broke. And he began to sob. And he put his head in his hands, and he said, Dad, I am so sorry. Please, Dad, forgive me. Dad, could we pray or something? And when he said, can we pray or something, I broke. And we knelt by the couch in the family room, arm in arm, and we both blubbered out a prayer. And then we stood and embraced. And strange thing, I never felt closer to my son than I did at that moment when he needed and received my forgiveness. Do you understand how your heavenly father loves you? The boy comes back, let's celebrate. He's forgiven. God, Charles Wendell used to say, God loves the broken heart, the bent knee, and the wet eye. He is near to those of a contrite spirit. And maybe in your heart today, you need to stand up because your heavenly father is passing by.